When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Stories of Scotland, a podcast about the history, nature and folklore of Bonnie Scotland. I'm Jenny, a sea urchin. And I'm Annie, an enthusiastic sea snail. Wait, I want to be an enthusiastic sea urchin now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, then I'm Annie, a miraculous sea snail. In this episode, we're going to be wading out past the low tide line and exploring the watery jungle that is kelp. Scotland's history is intimately tied to its vast and wild coastlines and the dark waters beyond. It's in these dark waters that huge and beautiful forests of kelp thrive, swaying ceaselessly in the churning currents and relentless tides. Most of you will know kelp as part of the salty seaweed mat, which washes ashore and dries slowly and somewhat stinkily on our lovely beaches. Or you'll know it as slimy tentacles brushing against your feet as you paddle in the cold waters of the Atlantic. But despite these somewhat questionable encounters, kelp is our slimy seaweed friend, and it has a surprising history in Scotland. Throughout the centuries, kelp has been an invaluable resource, providing sustenance, medicine and livelihoods to the people who collected it. During the industrial boom, kelp kept entire communities just about afloat, but like a bubble in the waves, all things must pop. The once thriving kelp industry collapses in Scotland, leaving thousands of hard-working people near destitute. So let's learn a bit more about that in this episode. It's a fascinating story of survival, exploitation and soda ash. So let's immerse ourselves into the watery world of kelp. I can't wait to dive in. We're going to have a whale of a time. A tsunami of information. Oh boy, or as they say in America, oh buoy. (laughs) (laughs) Shell. Seashell, we begin. You know, Annie, I'm not going to lie. It's kind of early to be doing a pun off in the episode. We are setting a high tide line here. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, let's get back to harbour, Jenny, and get this episode sailing. (laughs) Shiver me jingles. Let's go. Annie. Would you say kelp is a plant or an animal? A plant? <laughs> Wait, it can't be an animal. No, it can't be an animal. You're correct with that one. I don't understand, Jenny. Are you trying to tell me that kelp is a mythological being? Nope, that's kelpies, not kelp. But <laughs> to be fair, the actual answer is equally as amazing as kelpies. Because kelp is neither plant 
nor animal, nor mythological being. It is, in fact, a protist. I protest that you didn't give me that as an option. <laughs> well, they may not be mythological beings, but they are as tricksy as them. It's not the cat that's tricksy, Jenny. It's you. <laughs> well, you see, Annie, the world of living things is not quite as simple as plants and animals. And if we peer a little closer, or a lot closer, via microscopes, we can see that there are five main ways that life has evolved on the planet. There's plants, animals, fungi, monera, and protista. Most folk have heard of the first three of these kingdoms of life, but monera and protista are like the emo kingdoms who prefer to shy away from the limelight. But that doesn't mean you haven't heard of them. Monera are mainly bacteria, and protists include algae, and that's what kelp is, a large brown algae. And this large brown algae lives in the big old family of seaweeds. So let's get stuck in the seaweeds of this. How (laughs) are seaweeds different from plants then? Well, they are distantly related to plants in the same way that we are. They get their energy through photosynthesis, which is the same as plants, but their cell structure and overall structure differs. While plants have stems and leaves, kelp have stipes and blades. They perform similar functions, so support and photosynthesis, but have evolved completely separately over the last 200 million years or so, give or take a millennia. The stipes are long stem-like structures which can grow up to three metres tall. They hold the blades, the large dark green or brown leathery leaf-like fronds, up towards the sunlight. Unlike plants, however, they don't have roots. Instead, they have these fascinating structures called holdfasts. And they do exactly what they say on the tin. They anchor the kelp securely to the rocky seabed or boulders below, so they don't go floating away to the pharaohs. There are loads of species of kelp in the waters surrounding Scotland, but there's five main ones that are not just surviving, but thriving in the cold, rough waters of the Atlantic Ocean and North Sea. These nutrient-rich waters support huge kelp forests that grow between 5 metres and 30 metres of depth, depending on how clear the water is. In a somewhat murky sea loch, it'll be about 5 metres, but around the waters of St Kilda, because it's so so clear and pristine out there they can grow up to 30 meters deep but no matter what depth they grow at these kelp forests are home to thriving ecosystems just the same as a healthy forest on land is only without squirrels many seabirds use these areas as feeding grounds because the fish do too There's a whole food chain supported by kelp forests, which are used by various organisms for protection, food, breeding grounds, nursery areas, or just home. There's been loads of studies done on kelp forests, and one found an average of almost 8,000 individual invertebrates on one single kelp plant. And in Scotland, they found 70 different species living in the holdfasts alone. Kelp forests are some of the most productive habitats in all of Scotland. We just can't see them that easily. My mind is genuinely blown about seaweed not having roots, but having holdfasts. Like, it's really made me reconsider how I think of the ocean floor. They're really intricate, wonderful pieces of life. So we'll post some on our Instagram so you guys listening can see them because they are wonderful structures. And just like land forests, kelp forests sequester a huge amount of carbon from the atmosphere. They suck it all in and lock it all up and help keep our wonderful planet in balance. Globally, kelp forests suck up 4.5 million tonnes of carbon per year. These ecosystems are amazingly important and valuable and we should be appreciating them and protecting them at all costs. But as we see with much of the natural world, there's more than one type of value. And kelp has commercial value as well. Kelp contains alginate, which, once you extract it, is like a viscous gum used in all sorts of things, from toothpaste to waterproofing to meat alternatives. Mm. When we view it like this, 
suddenly kelp forests become a resource. And with all resources, people search for a way to exploit them. There was quite a big uproar a few years back about a proposal to mechanically harvest Scotland's kelp forests on a large scale. But luckily, after loads of campaigning by dedicated local groups, the government passed legislation to ban harvesting methods which harm the regrowth of the kelp. I think it's wonderful to see nature being prioritised before profit. But it's also important to note that not all kelp harvesting is bad. There are ways that it can be cut where it can then grow back happily and healthily. And there are many small-scale kelp harvesters working sustainably in our waters today. All this interest in kelp isn't new. Seaweed has been an important resource for thousands of years in Scotland. And a fascinating case study of the changing uses of kelp is the island of Tyree. Tyree is one of the islands of the Inner Hebrides. It sits happily in the sea to the west of the island of Mull and the mainland of Scotland. So how was kelp used in Tyree? Well, let's begin with agriculture. People of the Scottish coasts have used seaweed to bring kelpy goodness to nutrient-poor agricultural fields as fertiliser for hundreds of years. Kelp is an excellent organic fertiliser for crops, and unlike a lot of the land-based alternatives, kelp isn't going to introduce any new seeds or weeds to your fields. It would be gathered from beaches as it washed ashore, and then mixed into the earth as it was ploughed. The kelp was so nutrient-dense that it significantly reduced the need to rest your land in between crop rotations. But at some point, it was also discovered that if you burn a large amount of kelp seaweed, it produces a thick, oily slurry. Oh, and there be money in that slick, oily slurry. There certainly is, Jenny. This residue is mainly made up of sodium carbonate, which we call soda ash. Now, soda ash is used in the production of many things, but most commonly in glass and soap making. In soap making, soda ash's alkaline properties aid the soap's solvency and thus cleaning ability, whereas in glass making, soda ash helps to lower the melting point of silica sand and so massively reduces the amount of heat and thus energy required to make glass. And all this makes soda ash a rather hot commodity. And in Scotland, kelp was never a hotter commodity than during the Napoleonic Wars. You know, Annie, I'm not sure what I was expecting there, but it just the Napoleonic Wars were fairly low on my list. What was top of your list? Glass blowing conventions, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> Glass blowing conventions are complicated. But not as complicated as the political state of the late 1700s. You can say that again. <laughs> During this time, we see revolutions across the globe. We see wars and industrialization. Suddenly, factories are popping up and making significantly more streamlined work of what was once very manual and labor-intensive processes. However, these factories are not always a step in the right direction, as sometimes they are replacing slower but safer traditional ways of making things with more dangerous but significantly quicker new methods of doing things. But, as they would say in the Industrial Revolution, why let human safety stand in the way of progress? They did say that. That was a big slogan at the time. You could get postcards that said that on it from factories. <laughs> <laughs> you can't really. They did not say that. No, but maybe we should make some merch that does. <laughs> but whilst human rights weren't really a concern, political turmoil was getting in the way of these new industrialised factories being able to produce their goods. And so, because of this, previously lesser used resources became more valuable and in Shimmy's kelp to do an impressive strut. Because for kelp, the largest impact on her industry was the Napoleonic Wars. In 1806, Napoleon Bonaparte brought in the Continental Blockade. 
the Continental Blockade was a big embargo of trade goods against the British Empire. Why would Napoleon not want to trade with Britain at this time? Well, one small factor may have been that they were empires at war. Ah, that'll do it. Okay, so they weren't BFFs at this time. Or BBFFs. Best Britain, France, friends. Best Britain's best friends, France. They weren't that. No. Okay. Britain and France were very much enemies. It's nothing like nowadays. And the Continental Blockade was put in place in retaliation to the British Navy who were imposing their own little naval blockade on French ports. Ah, uh, okay, so I can see why Napoleon's getting annoyed. At this point in time, Napoleon was not only established as a major power in Europe, but he was threatening to grow the French Empire, and this terrified Britain, who wanted to be the biggest empire. Britain was highly concerned that France was taking over its place, and that Britain would no longer be a major power player in Europe. And as we know, British relations with Europe are vital because they are our closest and most convenient trading partners. Okay, and if I'm right, this is just after the French Revolution as well, yeah? Yes, and the British monarchy hated that France, as a republic, was doing her thing, and Britain was also worried that their people would look to France and think... That doesn't look so bad, eh? Do you know, maybe we should um, invest in a wee guillotine or two. Plus, the French had supported the United States in the American Revolution... So Britain was still a bit tender about that. Okay, true, but that is like blaming the cat for the breakdown of a marriage. It's not the French's <laughs> fault. <laughs> but I see what you mean. Okay, so in Europe in general, there's really high tension and it's all bubbling up with this blockade. Yes, the blockade is stopping Britain getting its regular goods into the country. Essentially, imagine all of Europe had a big party and both Britain and France turned up and really wanted to be the birthday boys. Hey, it's me, Napoleon Bonaparte! <laughs> but then the rest of Europe points out to them that it's not even their birthdays, and it's not even a birthday party. It was just a general party. And then Britain and France both have tantrums, and yet they still want everyone to be their allies and to give them candles and cake. And to some degree... Everyone does have to listen to Britain and France because they are neighbours and they are big and boisterous. Right, but there's no cake. No. Ah, le bummer. It's a ridiculous situation. But France is also perfectly positioned to be blockading Britain because France had recently claimed new territories and client states. So after this awkward party... France has convinced more of Europe to be friends with her than Britain has. The Continental Blockade is essentially an economic war. It was a great idea because Britain is an island nation and so international trade is the lifeblood of this economy. And while the blockade was undermined in quite a lot of ways by smuggling and people ignoring France's rules, it did disrupt the British economy significantly. Okay, and so how did this disruption affect kelp? Spain exported a product called Barilla to Britain, and due to the blockade, this was cut off. Barilla is a Spanish name for saltworts, which are a type of plant that thrives in a salty environment. So I'm guessing that Barilla would have really enjoyed the saltiness between these two warring empires. Plus, at this time, Barilla was the key plant being used for soda ash production. Now, thanks to Napoleon's blockade, Barilla couldn't get through to Britain and it couldn't be used in the industries that needed soda ash. Ah, OK, I see what's happening here. The lack of supply has caused a surge in demand and now the British are looking to kelp as their salty saviour. And because of this, the Scottish landlords, or their trustees, see an opportunity to exploit this supply issue by utilising their communities and coasts to get that salty, salty soda ash money. Exactly. And as a result, a whole industry develops to create the soda ash from kelp. 
However, extracting soda ash is pretty gruelling and hard work. From the late spring through to the late summer, whole families had to take part in the kelping. First, they needed to haul in the raw product, the seaweed. But because not enough kelp just washes up on the shore, people would have to wade out into the sea to cut it by hand, which requires massive muscle power to be able to pull out this heavy, heavy kelp. Once it was cut, it was put into a creel, which is a woven basket usually carried on the backs of people. And then it was carried ashore. As we know, things are way heavier when they're saturated with water. So this was incredibly physically demanding, strenuous work. The kelp would then be loaded onto a horse cart, which would take it to be spread out on dry land. Sometimes, if the kelp was collected in the winter months, it would take ages to dry out. But if it was collected in the spring or summer, it may only take a couple of weeks. Once dried, the kelp seaweed had to be burnt to make kelp ash. Big long trenches or deep pits were dug in the sand or on land and lined with stone slabs in order to make huge kilns. And it was here in these kilns that the seaweed was burnt. The peat fires had to be tended to constantly, for hours on end, and someone was assigned to stir it with a big iron rod the whole time. The burning produces thick white clouds of acrid smoke, but it also produces a thick oily substance which dripped down into the stone pit below. This molten slurry had the consistency of porridge, and whoever was tending to the kelp would smell for weeks afterwards. But it's this oily slurry that the various industries so desired. As this porridgey substance cooled, it solidified into a dense mass, which would then be broken apart with a hammer and chisel, bagged up and exported from the island to be refined for the manufacturing processes. Somewhat confusingly, this solid that was produced was referred to as kelp. But just for clarification, when we're talking about this, will say that they were burning kelp seaweed to produce kelp ash. And to get just a single tonne of precious kelp ash, the cotters and crofters would have to collect approximately 20 tonnes of fresh kelp, give or take a few tonnes depending on how dry it already was. But either way, that is a huge amount of seaweed. Now I know what you're thinking, Jenny. If there's money in this here kelp, then people are going to be rich. You're darn tootin' right I am, Annie. This was not the case. People were paid dreadfully for their work at the kelp, and landlords took the vast majority of profits for themselves. I was darn tootin' wrong. (laughs) (laughs) In the 1750s, a tonne of kelp could fetch around two to three pounds a tonne. But at the height of the industry... Around about 1810, kelp was selling for upwards of £20 a tonne. With over 20,000 tonnes of kelp being produced in the highlands and islands a year. 20,000 tonnes, that's a huge number. And it means that almost half a million tonnes of seaweed were being harvested by hand a year in Scotland. Just an unbelievable amount. And I guess that also means that approximately £400,000 of income was made a year, which, according to my handy internet inflation calculator, is about £25 million in today's money. So, yeah, there do be brown gold in this seaweed. They did call it brown gold. (laughs) This booming industry required huge amounts of labour to support it. But to keep profits nice and high... These workers were paid dismally. So let's head back to the island of Tyree, where there's a fascinating case of the way the kelp industry boomed and bust over these decades. It shows us how the hyper-focus of landlords on these fleeting kelp profits supported them in the long run of clearing out their ancestral tenants. This really highlights the role that the kelp industry played in the Highland clearances. Now, the clearances were a time period when people were forced, coerced or encouraged to leave their homes in the highlands and islands. 
the landowners were determined to change the uses of their lands in order to drive more profits. The landlords wanted massive estates dedicated to either deer or sheep. They didn't want communities of people, unless those people were making them a lot of money. The vast majority of Highlanders and Islanders were tenants on land, and they had been tenants for multiple generations, some for centuries. There were very few landowners, in fact, there still are even to this day, but they have huge estates. So they owned not only whole settlements, but whole islands. And these landowners didn't offer any way for people to ever take ownership of the land that they worked on. So there was no way for people to ever have a feeling of security. And part of the way that landowners manipulated Highlanders was by pushing them from the rich agricultural land that they had been on for generations down to much smaller crofting plots by the coast. The Highlanders and Islanders had always had a variety of jobs when it came to the land and the sea. However, this move and the reduction in the size and quality of their farmable plots pushed them into desperation. There was just no viable way they could support themselves and their families from farming alone. But when the political circumstances we've spoken of saw kelp prices soaring, the landlords pushed their tenants into spending their time hauling thousands of tons of seaweed from the coast to be processed and sold for industry. This move forced the tenants into depending on the kelp to survive as the landowners deliberately relocated them to tiny, agriculturally poor plots of land. It's all really quite sinister, especially when we look at it from the distance of time that we've currently got, because this move forces the communities to become dependent on the potato as a source of sustenance. The resilience of potatoes meant that it was the only crop that the people could grow enough of on these fringes of farmable land that they now had to work. And tragically, this over-reliance on the potato crop led to the famine in the mid-1800s. We see this happening in many places around the Highlands and Islands. But what's interesting about the Kelpie case in Tyree? Well, Tyree's a funny one because it had been highly successful in agriculture and was able to happily support itself on this steady and sustainable source of sustenance and income. The name Tyree comes from Gaelic and means land of corn, and the island's actually sometimes called the Granary of the Hebrides. However, when the kelp boom occurred, the landowner of Tyree, the Duke of Argyll, pushed the people from their wonderfully productive farmlands into kelping, and it did generate a lot of money for the Duke. This reduction of farmland for the tenants of Tyree means that they become more dependent on their landlord. They don't have enough land to grow a range of crops or to graze their own animals, so they are reliant on the additional very small income that they are paid from processing kelp. And adding another layer to this, sometimes all the rents were paid in kelp ash. However, if a crop failed and a family needed extra food, then the landlord would step in and give them a small portion of grain. It sounds almost kind, right? It's charitable. Well, not quite, because unfortunately nothing from a Highland landlord comes for free. So if for some reason a family couldn't get enough kelp bash for both their rents and any grains they had been given then they would end up getting into a debt with their landlord. Because the margins of what they made at the kelp were so tiny, if a family got into debt, it was incredibly challenging to ever recover from that. And if we look back at the accounts of people who had experience of kelping, it was miserable. There were masses of complaints from Highlanders and Islanders about the extremely hard labour they were essentially forced into, and the tiny amount that they were paid for their work. However, when the Napoleonic Wars end in 1815, Spanish barilla comes back on the menu. To add to this, taxes on salt are also reduced, which allows the newly discovered Leblanc process to be fully utilised. 
This is a process which allows for the industrial production of soda ash to occur at much lower costs than kelp production. As a result of these factors, the kelp industry crashes and the hundreds of communities that depend on it for income are plunged into poverty. By the 1830s, the kelp industry had all but burned out. During the boom, the price of kelp rose from £3 a tonne to £20 a tonne, and tens of thousands of Highlanders were involved in its production. But when this bubble popped, the price crashed back down to £3 a tonne. With what little income people were receiving from working in the kelp industry now gone, the people of Tyree find it increasingly hard to survive on their land alone. You see, in Tyree, the kelp industry had been a big contributor to the population boom. The population had more than tripled from 1750 to 1840. Starting out at about 1,500 people in 1750 and ending up at about 5,000 people in 1840. By this time, the kelp industry bubble has popped and people were heavily reliant on the potato harvest. But when the potato crop failed in 1846, and then again the next year and the next year, famine ravaged the impoverished communities and drove immigration from Tyree. In the latter half of the 1840s, hundreds of people from Tyree board immigrant ships each year. In 1869, 600 people left Tyree for Canada, crossing the kelp-filled Atlantic to start different lives on foreign shores. A lot of the people leaving were encouraged by schemes set up by the Highlands and Islands Emigration Society, who we've talked about before and they are quite problematic. Isn't it all quite problematic? <laughs> From the moment we followed the brown gold of the kelp, Annie, we've had nothing but problems. <laughs> the Duke of Argyll could have alleviated suffering by giving back the old farmlands that tenants had once worked. As Tyree was, after all, the granary of the Hebrides, there shouldn't have been anyone starving with so much fertile land. However, like many landowners, once the short-lived kelp industry had finished, he used this as an excuse to continue cleaving people of the land completely. But what's surprising is that this was not actually the end of kelp in Tyree. In 1864, so after hundreds of people have already left Tyree, an enthusiastic chemist arrived on the shores of Tyree on behalf of the British Seaweed Company. His name was Edward Stanford Curtis, and he had recently won an essay prize on the scientific applications of seaweed. I mean, that's a legitimate achievement. <laughs> it's on my bucket list, Annie. <laughs> <laughs> Edward was tasked with overseeing a new seaweed factory which was built in Middleton, which the locals called the Glassery. However, when they were deciding on the site to build this factory, can you guess whose land they decided to build it upon, Annie? Did they? Did they take more farmland from the tenants? Bingo, Annie. Wow, you're, you're on it. <laughs> <laughs> because not even a prestigious seaweed essay award could satisfy the need to rob yet another crofter of their land. And so the Glassery Kelp Factory started off on rocky ground in Tyree. So people are going to get jobs collecting seaweed for this factory so that they can process it. Did they get a good deal for working with the factory at last? No. Oh. But it's even worse than that, Annie, because the islanders weren't even paid in cash. Rather, they were given a note of how much they had earned based on the work they'd done to exchange for items in the factory shop. And then on top of this, the people complained that the goods in the factory shop were priced too high. But it wasn't all bad. Some of the people who ran the horse and carts thought that they made a good living from doing that. And the man who grew the carrots for the horses, John McLean, who was also known as the old man of the carrots, did well because he sold a lot of carrots to the horses. So I guess there's like four happy people <laughs> and a lot of happy horses. <laughs> it's like 
Who benefits from the kelp industry? And it's the landowners and then a few horses who also have to do very hard work pulling these carts, but who get lovely carrots from the old man of the carrots. Which is kind of what I want to be known as. Like, if I get a new nickname at any point, I want it to be the old man of the carrots. <laughs> I suppose I gotta, like, start handing out carrots to every horse I see. Yeah, that's what you need to do, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> But it's appalling, really, when you think about it. All of this hard labour at the kelp, and people aren't even paid real money for it. It's such a bad deal. It was a terrible deal. But by 1901, the world had moved forward from extracting chemicals from kelp, and so the factory in Tyree closed. For decades, the factory building lay in ruins, but it was finally demolished in the Second World War. I think the rise and fall of the kelp industry shows us a very interesting economical tool of the Highland Clearances. We see the landowners enjoying their skyrocketing profits while never getting their hands salty. In the modern age, we can look at the historic kelp industry and say without doubt that it was highly exploitative and unsustainable. But... Remember, the people who worked the kelp industry were never passive victims. They were rather incredibly resilient, hard-working people who made the best of a very hard time. And in the late 1800s, Tyree was amongst many parts of the highlands and islands who stood up and fought back for better land rights. It's a fight that's still going on to this day. Overall, just thinking about the kelp industry makes me a little bit angry. However, I am really glad for what we've learned about in this episode because I feel like in an apocalypse situation, if society collapsed, my new knowledge of kelp processing means that I could start a lovely soap factory. You know, of all the apocalypse films I've watched, everyone is very dirty. So I feel like a soap factory is like a good bet for you there, Annie. (laughs) I can imagine you just trying to burn kelp as zombies run towards you, trying to attack you (laughs) and clean them. Well, Jenny, there was an old superstition that if a person was sick and they jumped through the smoke from burning kelp, then they would be cured. So maybe that's how I end the apocalypse. The zombies jump through it and become human again. Who knows? Yeah, and then you can exploit them to get more kelp for you (laughs) (laughs) and keep the whole cycle going. (laughs) History is just one broken bicycle wheel going round and round and making us miserable. (laughs) Play the jingle. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. As with most things that were an integral part of Scottish culture, they're also deeply entwined with the folklore of this country. And this is no different for kelp. To end this episode, I have a story from about 200 years ago, right around the time the kelp bubble was bursting, which explores the mysterious world of kelp and the consequences of harvesting it. This tale takes us back to the shores of the Isle of Benbecula in the Outer Hebrides. In fact, It takes us all the way to a bay named Paul Nancran, to be precise. Or, as it's known locally, Stinky Bay. Now, it may not surprise you, but it gets this name from the large amounts of seaweed that are blown ashore by the relentless Atlantic winds. 
while the seaweed is blown ashore, it is not swept away. And so it lays out in large piles and slowly rots in the sun. And while this sounds rather unappealing, to the folk of Stinky Bay, this seaweed was a valuable resource. And while the rotting piles were not much use, the large kelp forest in the waters was. And so, one day, when the folks were out up to their waists in cold water, cutting frond after frond of kelp, they were moving further and further into the kelp forest. But as they waded out further and cut more kelp, there came a great splashing disturbance from amongst the dark waters where the kelp forest flourished. Thinking that this must be a large fish or even a seal, the folk ignored it and kept on cutting, singing away as they worked. But soon, the disturbance was too large and frequent to ignore. During one particularly large splash, all those in the water stopped to try and see just what it was that was churning the waters so much. To their surprise, a most strange-looking creature emerged from the dark waters of the kelp forest. She was a woman in miniature, and with each splashing crash she raised herself higher and higher from the water, calling in anger, in some unknown tongue, as if warning the kelp harvesters to encroach no further upon her home. The people of Stinky Bay were an equal mix of terrified and intrigued, and moved to shoo the bizarre sea woman from the waters. But the more they splashed her, the more aggravated she became. In the excitement of what they were seeing, one of the young lads picked up a stone from the seabed. As the water woman turned to swim away, he threw the stone at her and hit her square in the back. A few days later, the sea woman washed ashore. She was dead. Most likely from the blow the stone had delivered to her back. The people of Stinky Bay were intrigued, for this was unlike any being they had ever seen before. Her hair was long, as dark as the depths and slimy to touch. Her skin was as white as a shell. But stranger still, the top of the creature's body, from the waist up, was but a foot long, and despite how odd her upper half was, her lower half was even weirder. It was like that of a salmon. This creature was a true mermaid. After centuries of speculation and claims of sighting, here was proof, finally, that mermaids were real. It seemed as if the whole island turned out over the next few days to view the creature, and word soon spread past the shores of Bembecula to all the surrounding isles. Everyone was unanimous in their conclusions. They had found a mermaid at last. Despite the jubilation at this, the people of Stinky Bay felt horribly guilty that they had killed this woman of the waves while she was just trying to defend her home amongst the kelp. And so they decided to bury her and give her a solemn and serious funeral. The factor of the island ordered a small coffin to be made. Hundreds of people turned up to pay their respects to the mermaid, and she was buried just a mile north of Stinky Bay, so as to always be close to her home amongst the kelp. And from then on, the people of Bembecula would be sure to only cut kelp from the very edges of the forest, for fear of disturbing any more mermaids who lived within. I feel sorry both for the mermaid and also <laughs> for your barbaric Gallic just calling it Stinky Bay <laughs> throughout that story. People of Pembecula, I apologise for that. I can't predict, so the Gallic name doesn't translate to Stinky Bay, but it's just like the colloquial name for the area. What are you going to do, Annie? It's a Stinky Bay. <laughs> But I guess this is a story about respecting the natural world around us and all the wonderful things that live within it, no matter how mythological they may be. Despite being underwater and out of sight, kelp forests are incredibly important ecosystems. However, like every ecosystem on our planet, they are increasingly threatened by our human activities. 
rising sea temperatures as a result of climate change threaten the kelp forests and the entire ecosystem they support. Yeah, I was just reading today that the waters around the UK and Ireland are currently experiencing a Category 4 marine heatwave, meaning that some areas are up to 4 degrees warmer than usual for this time of year. This is really, really worrying, especially for the long term, as many species have not evolved to survive sustainably in these warming conditions. And then the overfishing of creatures like lobsters can result in a lack of predators for sea urchins, who then go on to strip entire kelp forests bare and leave them barren. And also, fishing trawlers can damage large swaths of kelp as well. It's imperative that we protect these marine environments and ensure that they are able to continue playing their important role in the balance of the world. I've got good news on that front, Annie, because kelp beds are protected in 17 locations around Scotland, which is really promising. As I mentioned earlier in the episode, there have been attempts to enact large-scale mechanical harvesting of Scotland's kelp forests. Luckily, these plans were quashed by legislation which regulates the way that kelp is harvested. However, this doesn't mean that it can't be gathered and used commercially, as it is still a viable resource. Small-scale sustainable harvesting is carried out by many people who ensure that they cut the kelp without destroying the whole organism, allowing it to keep growing back. Seaweed farming is also starting to pick up, and this is far more ecologically friendly and sustainable than dredging. With this, ropes are seeded with kelp seeds and sunk to the sea or loch bottom, allowing the kelp to grow and be sustainably managed and farmed. And honestly, Annie, I got super into seaweed farming and now I want to start a seaweed farm and sell my slimy biopolymers to all the toothpaste companies who want them. I can see you out there in your waders now, Jenny. Oh, actually, no, I hate cold water. I take it all back. (laughs) (laughs) You're right, Jenny. I was trying to be supportive. There's no way I could actually see you out there in your waders. (laughs) Well, (laughs) thanks for the initial thought and, and then the honesty, I guess. (laughs) The 19th century kelp industry marked a major shift in how landowners in the highlands and islands managed their estates and how they viewed people who had lived there for generations. I think what the bubble of that industry shows us is that communities in the highlands and islands need diversity of occupations to survive. There is never only one industry that should be supporting a whole village or town or island. Furthermore, this is a lesson on sustainability and investing in industries that can have meaningful impact for generations to come and not just the short-term profits for the richest. And what's quite lovely is I think that the modern kelp industry does represent this kind of sustainable industry. Thinking back to the island of Tyree, I think we just need to give a shout out to that beautiful and unique coastal landscape. From the beautiful wildflower dense Makar to the Kelpie Seas, this biodiversity of the lands and seas protects this island from coastal erosion. And now when I think about kelp, it just makes me exceptionally happy. Thank you all so much for listening to our wee show. If you've been enjoying it, then we'd love if you could leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps us win the algorithm wars. Also, if you're planning a trip to Scotland or are really interested in a particular location in Scotland, I spent the last few weeks building an interactive map that has the locations of all our episodes on it. You can scoot about the map, select a pin, and then immediately be taken to the podcast episode about that area. It's really cool. I'm really excited about it. And I'd love for you guys to check it out and give us any feedback on it. You can also head over to our Patreon and subscribe there if you'd like to support us. Here, you not only help keep our little ship afloat, you also get lots of extra Scottish content. What's not to love about that, Annie? Thank you so much to our newest patrons, Audra and Lore. Thank you so, so much for supporting the show. I was thinking, what kelp-related thing could I talk about here for we close it? <laughs> I like to think of us all 
as building a stone circle in Neolithic Far North Scotland. How does this relate to kelp, I hear you asking, with a shocked look upon your face. Well, one of the theories for the easiest way of moving massive heavy stones to make a standing stone circle was actually by making a path of seaweed, a path of kelp, from the location that your stone originally was to the location that you wanted your stone to be, and then simply sliding it across the kelp. Um, Modern reconstructions have tried to do this, and it's been massively successful. So that's my place and time where I want us to be. So we build our beautiful stone circle with our kelp very effectively, and then we go and party with some kelpies in the sea. I think it's delightful, don't you, Jenny? I do. Did you know that about stone circles, Jenny? No, I didn't, and it's got me very excited. Top tip, top tip. We'll look more into it and come back to you with more. All right, sounds brilliant. <laughs> Thank you all so much for listening. Until next time, Slanjava. Slanjava. Because for Kel, the largest impact on her industry was the Napoleonic Wars. And glassblowing conventions. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think glassblowing conventions were that big in the early 1800s, Jenny, I'm not going to lie. You'd be surprised how many postcards there are about glassblowing conventions around the Napoleonic Wars. People needed to release some steam, literally. Blow out some steam. (laughs) Okay, we'll just cut this, it's fine. Everyone does have to listen to Britain and France because they are neighbours and they are big and boisterous. But it's also a bit ridiculous. So, do you know what's really good at cutting continental European sized birthday cakes? What is? Guillotines. <laughs> <laughs> I love the smell of kelp. That's wow. Like, I genuinely want to eat seaweed when I smell kelp. You mean, like, when it's on the beach and it's on, like... I don't even know how to describe it. It's, like, offensive sea. So, in my head, I say it's fermenting and it's umami. Yum, 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 yum. (laughs) Anyway, let's cut that. No one's going to relate to that. (laughs) Yeah, that's... Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.